0: and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Caroline Leafers, and it's my pleasure to have Michael Hudson as my guest today. Michael is the director of the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind, which is in Louisville, Kentucky. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Good to have you. So for those who aren't in the know, what exactly is the American Printing House for the Blind?
1: So APH, we we we're very fond of our acronyms in the blindness field. Um uh APH was founded in eighteen fifty-eight to emboss books in raised letters. Uh and over the last hundred and sixty odd years, uh the company just has, has grown and evolved as um the field of education uh, for people who are blind or vision impaired has changed. And so today, we're about 279,000 square feet of manufacturing, research, and development space. And we, uh, our primary market is kindergarten through 12th grade. And so we uh, translate and emboss uh, textbooks in Braille. We print large type books, textbooks in Braille. I mean, in large type, uh, we record books downstairs. We call them talking books. Um, and then we make just an incredible variety of educational aids, uh, varying from, you know, calculators that talk to globes that you can read with your fingers to, uh, these really cool Velcro kits that, uh, help kids learn the way that light, uh, bounces off things, you know. Uh, yeah, pretty cool. So, you know, science, math, physical education, braille education, just anything that a, that a kid has to learn, we make those. And then we make all kinds of adult uh, products as well. So, so that's APH.
0: That's impressive. So APH has a museum. When was the museum established and why?
1: So about 1990, I guess, uh, some folks in our marketing department started realizing that nobody at APH ever threw anything away. <laughs> 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 and that it was this really old company, and we had kind of just had our finger in everything that had been going on uh, over the last, you know, 100 and at that point, uh, 30 years or so. And, and so they they started gathering things together in one of the older wings of the building, and eventually in 1994 we opened up our museum. Uh, and so it it uh, to this day really the 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 mission of the Museum of the American Printing House is to create encounters with objects and ideas. Uh, that tell the story of literacy and learning for people that are blind and visually impaired.
0: Mm -hmm. So what are some of the exhibits that you have on display in your galleries that create these experiences for people?
1: Sure. So, so, you know, we, uh, I mean, we could talk about that for forever by the way, (laughs) uh, because that's my, you know, that's what I love uh, is how you tell stories with things. But for instance, we have uh, probably better than 40 different braille writers, from all over the world um, that show how braille rider design um, has evolved over time, we have exhibits on math, how you teach math, uh, you know, starting with some of the early, what are called arithmetic slates, like a Taylor slate, which uh, was this uh, kind of an uh, aluminum board and has these little star-shaped holes in it. And it comes with these little metal types that have symbols, uh, different symbols on each end. And by rotating that type in that star-shaped s- star hole, you change the meaning of the, of the symbol it's supposed to represent. And so by using that, they're in a grid. So you could set up a math problem the uh, same way that someone with a pencil and paper might set up a column of, of uh, figures to add them together. Mm-hmm. You could do the same thing here, only you're using a little tactile symbol. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we have tactile geography uh, exhibit with, you know, uh, the kind of highlighted of that exhibit is this big 30-inch globe with exaggerated relief cast into it so you can get your arms all the way around the world and, uh, you know, explore Micronesia or South America or whatever you're interested in. Um, and then we have exhibits on technology, you know, how, how you go from preparing an embossing plate. Uh, to make a Braille book, Um, originally those were done literally uh, on a machine called a stereograph machine, and you would sit there and type the dots onto a metal plate by hand. You'd have the book, you know, on a little stand there, and you'd be literally translating as you go uh, up to the way it happens now where you're basically just using a software package. And uh, literally you can take the, uh, you know, a digital text file, and put it into that software, and it'll translate it. Uh, it's not perfect, you know, like Google Translate mm-hmm. is not perfect, but it's still very much, very much faster than it was back in the old days. So that kind of gives you a sense of, of what we do. And then we also kind of, you know, we, we have a lot of visitors who have no understanding of uh, of the blindness field, and so we we have one exhibit that's just uh, stocked with goggles that illustrate various kinds of vision loss. And then we have a phone book and some stacks of Campbell's soup and some other types of household things. And we ask the visitor to put on a pair of the goggles and then try to accomplish uh, a task that, you know, people do every day, uh, Mm -hmm. only under the uh, condition of some sort of vision loss, you know, like macular degeneration or glaucoma or something like that.
0: Wow, that's really fascinating and extensive. I, I, I now want to go to Louisville and check it out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know what? What What's cool is that a lot of people come to the printing house uh, and they're curious about how we do the things we do, but they're also a little nervous. Mm. Um, you know, because of that, you know, what we call the veil of blindness, you know, uh, uh, among disabilities, if you if you do a survey, you know, the number one feared disability is always blindness, you know, greater than heart disease. <laughs> so uh, this is something that people are afraid of. I mean, sighted people are. And, and so one of the things that we that we discover is they come in kind of nervous and uncertain, but they always leave amazed at what's possible when you just adapt things. And that's all the printing house really does. You know, we just adapt things so that people can do whatever they wanted to do already. we just got to do it in a different way. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For people who can't make it into Louisville, do you also have online exhibits?
1: We do a little bit. Uh, our website, uh, which is aph.org forward slash museum, has a lot of our exhibits on there uh, so that, uh, uh, say, for instance, all of our audio ones. And by the way, our, we try our you know our exhibits are tried we try to design them so that anybody can enjoy them. So there's lots of things to touch and listen to. Uh, um, almost all of our labels are are on the reading rail in both print and braille and an audio wand format. And so all those audio wands uh, are the, the the audio recordings uh, are are posted on the internet. Uh, and there's a lot of details on there. There's also a lot of like reference information, uh, annual reports that are scanned in, things like that. We have a really large uh, library called the Miguel Library. It's probably the largest collection in the world of non-medical, as- on uh, information on non-medical aspects of blindness. And we're scanning that stuff in as fast as we can. It's all posted to the Internet Archive in a a number of uh, accessible formats. Um, And so there are links to that library there as well. So you can get to a lot of things uh, without having to actually come to Louisville.
2: Wow,
0: that's really much appreciated for researchers as well. So thank you for doing that. And
1: are you you familiar with Open Library at all, the way it works?
0: I think I've stumbled into it accidentally, but I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about it.
1: So here's the cool thing about open library. Okay. Open library is kind of also part of the internet archive, but say you have a physical copy of the book. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you can scan it in normally under copyright rules. If it was still in copyright, you couldn't make it available on the internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a lot of our stuff that's available on our Miguel library site is there because it's out of copyright, but If it's in copyright, the way open library works is they will have that one copy of a digital copy of your book, which corresponds to your physical copy, and they can loan that one book out over the internet. Wow. Um,
2: That's yeah, okay. And so
1: you can borrow it for, say, five days or whatever. And then, of course, if you don't return it yourself manually, it'll, whoop, you know, automatically go back into the kitty.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, That's going to allow libraries like ourselves to have all these really specialized collections to make them available for loan. And you could use them from a computer anywhere in the world. Uh, And for researchers, that's just, you know, I mean, it's like candy, right?
0: Absolutely. This is this is going to be really life-changing for a lot of researchers, especially if they don't have to wait for the books to go out of copyright to become accessible to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, now only one, you know, say we have one copy of the book on the shelf, only one researcher can be using it at a time, but when you're using these really when you have these really specialized collections that, you know, there may only be four or five researchers at any one point, you know, really working on that on that topic. So it's it's really, uh, you know, we're just scanning as fast as we can.
0: Wow, that's tremendous. Are there any special treasures in your collection that you might want to tell people about?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, How much time do we have?
0: (laughs) But I'll tell you about, I'll tell you
1: about, I'll tell you about our number one thing that we just got. uh, And it is uh, an 1829 copy of what's called the Preside, which is the method. And that is Louis Braille's original publication of the Braille, his Braille system.
2: Oh, wow. Um,
1: and uh, it's embossed in raised letters. And uh, there are only six copies of this book that we know of anywhere in the world, only two in the United States. And we think that our copy, which is on display in our museum, we built a, a new exhibit that opened in 2017 called A Boy Named Braille. Mm. and. Uh, it features that book, and uh, of course, it's you know, it's in a case where you know the light is normally off, and when you step in front of the case, the light comes on for a few seconds so you can look at it because mm-hmm. it's that kind of a precious uh, thing. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. That's kind of like the Bible, if you want to think about it, for people that are blind and visually impaired. That book. Um, we also have a copy of, from 1786 of the first book done in Raised Letters. And uh, Raised Letters was, were the system that was initially developed uh, in France uh, mm-hmm. by this guy named uh, Valentin Awi. Uh His book was called The Aside the Essay uh, on Education for the Blind. Um, we have a copy of that book on display as well. Um, we uh, We have as I said, uh, an enormous Braille writer collection, uh, beginning with uh, Frank Hall's original Hall Braille writer uh, from the 1890s. And then we have examples from the United States, from France, from Germany, from Switzerland, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, Australia, uh, England, uh, and every one of these braille writers is interesting because it seems as if there was always some uncle with an engineering background <laughs> who had, a, you know, uh, somebody in their family who was blind and thought to themselves that they could build the better mousetrap. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so the, the different mechanical principles that are used for these braille writers are just fascinating. But in uh, 1951, uh, a guy named Abraham, who was working at the uh, Howe Press for the Perkins Institution, invents the Perkins Braille Rider.
2: Okay. Have okay. you
1: ever seen one?
0: No, I have not.
1: Okay. So the Perkins Braille Rider is the, is the, is the <clears throat> gosh, how to put it? Um, it's the Cadillac of <laughs> Braille Riders. Okay? okay. And more. It was so successful and, and mainly it was so successful because you could literally throw it down the stairs or use it to chalk the wheels of an eighteen wheeler and <laughs> it would it would still write. Okay. And all these other designs were either too heavy or be, you know, they would break. But the Perkins was just perfect. And so more Perkins braille riders have been manufactured than in than all the other braille rider designs combined. Um, so we, we have Perkins uh, out on the rail where, you know, our visitors can write their name in Braille. And it's one of the it's one of the favorite things that people do while they're here at
0: the museum. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. So, I mean, you're kind of talking about this, but I'd love for you to say more about it. How has education for the blind and APH's work changed over the years? Have there been other than new Braille writers emerging? Have there been other shifts in um, how blind people are able to access information?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and a lot of it had to do with a law that was passed in 1879 here in the United States called the Act to Promote the Education of the Blind. Mm-hmm. And what it did was it created a federal a uh, fund uh, that kids uh, who were legally blind anywhere in the United States could draw on to have their books and educational products made here at APH. And that funding has been critical. Uh, to provide, you know, uh, uh, so that we could do the research and development we needed to do to kind of advance the field along. But, you know, initially, it's all about getting books. Uh, There aren't enough books in raised letters. And so our, you know, in the early days, what we were really working on was more books, and then better books, Mm -hmm. you know, moving away from raised letters to Braille. Yeah. Yeah. you know, coming up with devices that you needed to both read and write Braille. Today, you know, it's all about technology. So, so for instance, today, some of the things we're working on are, are what are called refreshable Braille displays. Okay, so refreshable Braille displays been around a long time, and and our collection, we have all kinds of, of great ones. But basically what they are is kind of a computerized display that raises pins into the patterns of the Braille dots. Mm-hmm. And so when you connect that to a computer, uh, you know, say for instance, you could go to the website of the New York times and you wanted to read the, you know, the, the big news story that was on the front and, uh, you would connect your refreshable braille display to your computer and it, and it would basically drive the pins and, and raise the letters. I mean, raise the characters in the braille dots. Yeah. Um, so anything that's out there in a, basically a text file or a word file or any of that stuff is now accessible to somebody who has one of these one of these displays. Um, we also make or uh, are, are experimenting with uh, indoor navigation. Um, so you're familiar with using a GPS device to get around the roads, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and those are all connected to satellites. But satellites don't help you inside buildings. The concrete, you know, that our buildings are made out of interferes with the signal. Mm -hmm. So how could you use a similar type of idea to maneuver inside a building the same way that you, you know, maneuver the highways? So that indoor navigation, we have an app for your cell phone called uh, Nearby Explorer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it uses these beacons and stuff that you would put around it at, at important landmarks inside the building and guide you, you know, to, them. um, it's not perfect technology. We're still, you know, at the beginning, kind of experimenting with how to do it. And, but it's the kind of thing that is going to not just help people who are blind or visually impaired. It's going to help everybody, you know, think about when you went to a hospital the last time and how hard it was to navigate this. Yeah complicated building. Um, so, you know, it's the kind of thing It's you know, like everything, when you make it better for one group, usually you make it better for everybody. Um, but, but, you know, the story of education of the blind is also dominated in the United States, by uh, mainstreaming. So, uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, most kids who are blind or visually impaired stop going to a residential school. And by the way, there's a whole story behind that that we won't go into right now. But um, And they start going to their local schools. And so that makes the job of educating that kid a lot more challenging. Because instead of, you know, having, say, 10 kids in the 10th grade, they're all blind or visually impaired, they're at a school, state school for the blind, where the teacher has been there for 20 years and is very experienced and knows their Braille. Now they're being taught largely by general education teachers Mm -hmm. who have no special background in uh, blindness. And they probably meet uh, a few hours a day or a few hours a week uh, with a TVI, Teacher of the Visually Impaired. And so it's it, it's made our job here at the Printing House uh, much more challenging as we try to develop the tools that those teachers are going to need to teach that kid.
0: Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about what makes the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind as a museum different from other institutions?
1: Well, I think it probably has to do with the irony that all of these things that are the kind of the meat and potatoes of our collection, they were all made to be experienced with senses besides vision.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so think about the irony of a museum where, what if we put all that under glass where it couldn't (laughs) be touched?
0: Yeah, that wouldn't work. Uh,
1: (laughs) That would be ironic, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, so we have our, our touching rules are much, much different than those of a typical you know, art or history museum. You instead of having to justify why something can be touched, in our museum it has to be justified why it can't be touched. So in general, we divide all of our artifacts into three categories. Uh, one category would be uh, education collection. It can be touched, you know, to destruction. Uh, Middle category would be something that uh, we have many examples of, and so we can put one copy out to be touched. Mm -hmm. And finally, in a very small category, would be the things that are one of a kind, uh, and uh, we can't allow people to touch them. But in those circumstances, we really try hard to come up with a reproduction that can be touched. For instance, most of our raised letter books are are very rare, and so we will make reproductions of a page from the book, so that uh, so that somebody can touch that and see what it see what those raised letters felt like. Um, and then we're also ex- always experimenting with, you know, audio and and uh, and uh, different kinds of of tactile things. But I have, you know, there are a lot of original artifacts that are literally out where they can be touched.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But why not? Yeah. If you have
1: ten. Of this one model of Braille Writer, why is it wrong to put one out where it can be touched? And, you know, we, we use um, microcrystalline wax, Renaissance wax, we wax things, and we, we, you know, we're always, you know, trying to make sure that we're not getting any damage. And by and large, people are very respectful to the, the objects that are here. They're, they're appreciative that we put them out and they don't abuse them. Um, but, you know, we just think it's very important that, um, that, you know, these things be, uh, accessible. Mm -hmm,
0: mm Mm-hmm. 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 Well, you're preaching to the choir. Absolutely. So take me a little bit through this process that you go through when you design an exhibit for your galleries. How are you ensuring that everything is accessible and is going to work for your audience?
1: So we, we work in a team. Um, we have a curator who is, you know, researching the story. And um, identifying, you know, I, I would say we always start with the story first. Uh, we wanted, we want to tell a story, and so we're we're, we're doing research on it. Uh, then you're going to look at your collection and see what do we have in the collection that illustrates the story. Because in the end, we are a museum, and we are uh, we are arranging encounters with authentic things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why you go to a museum, right? You, I, I saw the Liberty Bell, right?
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: Liberty Bell is this important thing and you want to arrange encounters with those things.
2: Then
1: mm-hmm. we have a, a, a graphic designer, uh, who is, uh, you know, trying to, uh, look at, at, at the, the images that you've, you've selected. And, uh, and the, and the type fonts, you know, we're going to make sure that all of our type fonts are in large print.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if we have images, we have to decide, how, do we need to have descriptions of those images? Um, and how, how is it going to be lit? Because for a lot of people who are low vision, uh, you want to, you know, low light situations like you might encounter in generally in museums are a problem for them. Um, but but uh, museums don't like a lot of light, right? Because mm-hmm. light damages. So that you, there's, a, there's a balance there. And we're going to have a fabricator who is going to uh, work with the curator and the graphic designer to figure out what casework needs to be built. Um, but when you're looking at the artifacts, you're, you're always thinking, How do I, what can I put out that can be touched?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: for instance, on the Boy Named Braille exhibit, um we had really one artifact, one.
2: Mm-hmm. We had
1: the presede. Mm-hmm. So Louis Braille, the inventor of the Braille system, he lost his vision from an accident in his father's leatherworking shop with a tool called a serpet. Mm-hmm. Now a serpet is a very sharp leather cutting tool. Yeah. Uh so I found one online that more or less looked exactly like the kind of serpet his dad might have had in the tool, in the thing. I sent it down to our, our machine shop. They took the edge off of the serpent mm-hmm. and then the fabricator and I worked on a cradle that would hold it on the rail so that there was no danger of anybody cutting themselves, but they could still touch it.
2: Mm-hmm. Then
1: uh, another aspect of the story was that Louis had already learned the shapes of the letters before he actually went off to school uh, because his father had, had uh, hammered uh, upholstery tacks into a piece of wood in the shapes of the letters. So we created that um, down in the shop. So we were always looking for ways that we could create imitation. Uh, he uh, Louis invents this code called refu- refigraphy, which basically is the letters that sighted people use, only made out of dots.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, he had a whole little typewriter called a ref- refigraph, or I'm probably butchering that. But um, so we found online a uh, some wonderful person who had created a computer font of Louis's letters. So uh, we had those printed downstairs on a a special printer uh, uh, made by this company called Roland that embosses uh, by putting coats of multiple coats of ink onto the page until it builds up relief. Mm -hmm. And then we took it to another machine called a thermograph, uh, which takes a piece of plastic and puts it over the top of that original pattern, heats them up, and you get a nice plastic uh, model of the original. And so that was out there. So. I guess uh, you know it's it's just it's teamwork uh, between the storyteller and then the the fabricators who are who are kind of charged with 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 figuring out how to how to put the exhibit together.
0: Well, I'm learning so much from this conversation, but tell me more as well about your programming. Do you have special training programs, for example, to ensure that your interpreters are familiar with how to make things more accessible in a museum?
1: So we do a lot of that. Uh, in fact, uh, yesterday, our uh, accessibility coordinator, Maria Delgado, and I went over to another museum here in town called Locust Grove, it's a historic site. And uh, we've been doing a number of training programs over there for their staff on how to uh, uh, make a, 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 a visitor who's blind or vision impaired you know, make their experience better. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we, we kind of constantly are training our own staff about how to do audio descriptions, mm. um, how to use the various uh, accessible parts of the exhibit, uh, how to make sure that, you know, people know they're there and how to access them. Um, our museum has, I think last year we did 44 different education programs. Oh, wow. um, we do a monthly program here at the printing house. Uh, for instance, coming up in March is my favorite one of the year. It's called Braille Readers Theater. Uh, we've been doing that now for seven years. And basically, it's a little theater troupe that uh, does readers theater, which uh, uh, basically means they've got their scripts there. They're in Braille. Uh, but other than that, it's it's all hammy local theater. You know, anybody who's ever done community theater would recognize <laughs> exactly what we're doing there. This year, we're doing Charlotte's Web.
2: Oh, okay. uh,
1: Yeah, it's going to be great. It's the first children's theater piece that we've tried, Um, but our actors are really, they're all members of the community who are blind or vision impaired and they love it. So that's, that's our program for March. And we, you know, we do programs for Veterans Day where we look at, you know, the impact of uh, blinded veterans on, uh, on uh, the history of orientation and mobility, which is how people get around, long canes and dog guides, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then we do, we do, you know, just, standard little museum programs where we teach you how to make a tactile Christmas card. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really all over the place. Our educators go out into the schools and do outreach programs. We do a lot of programs for scouts because uh, the boy scouts and those girl, girl scouts have these badges and stuff that are, di- that deal with diversity and, and inclusion. Um, and so we participate in that. Um, we do, we do a lot of museum programs.
0: Mm-hmm. well you're clearly a model for accessible and inclusive practice not just for people with visual impairments but it seems like lots of different members of the community
1: and that's part of our that's part that's one of our five main goals is 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 to participate in the local and the regional and the national conversation about accessible museums because everybody is struggling with that um, and uh, you know it's a it's a challenge because the the culture okay of museum studies tells you that you shouldn't do any of this stuff <laughs> right you Touching know you, sh- you know you want right you want low you know and 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 you know you know museum people uh, archives folks you know they're they're uh sensitive to the opinions of their peers um I know. I started here 13 years ago. I came from a very uh, uh, traditional uh, museum background, and I thought these people here were all nuts. You know, the, you know, cases open up so people can put their hands in them and their, you know, their artifacts out where they can be touched. And uh, yeah, it was just uh, a, a real culture shock. But of course, now I'm, you know, I've drank the Kool-Aid, I guess you could say, and and I'm a total convert. But it's 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 a challenge when you're you know, your graduate degree tells you don't touch, low light, um, you know, those sorts of things.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you also make efforts to have um, interns or staff members or um, people on your board, for example, who are from the blind
2: community?
1: We, we do. We mm-hmm. do. Uh, although, uh, I mean, I, we start our internship program... About five or six years ago, uh, we've had a summer intern every year since. And um, our first intern, we were very lucky. We found this wonderful young lady who happened also. Uh, she had a museum. Uh, uh, her undergraduate degree was in, in museums, and and she had. Uh, she was a low vision person herself. Uh, but it is not always easy to find uh, uh, interns who also have a, a visual impairment, but I think it's really important, uh, to do that. Uh, we, we have, I think our board has two of the 12, maybe our folks who also have a, um, vision loss. Um, and, and, uh, my boss, uh, Gary Mudd who's the vice president of, of uh, community and government affairs is, is, is blind himself. And so those are, you know, we're never really going to get where we need to be in, until, uh, we make sure that we have folks at the, who are making the decisions, uh, who um, also come from the consumer groups.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a nice way of putting it. So for other museums that are trying to, uh, if you will, like unlearn everything that they learned in their Museum Studies programs, and think a little bit more about accessibility, are there resources that you can recommend to help them in their journey?
1: what i'm going to tell you is it is it's going to sound really simple um, but but it's my philosophy on it. you know typically we're scholars what what is our first step? We think we can check a book out or we can buy a book and read a book about it right
2: mm-hmm.
1: i I refute that hmm. what I say is identify people in your community that come from the group that you wish to uh, uh, improve your uh, uh, offerings to. And that could be people from a minority group. It could be people from a gender um, that you're not reaching. It could be people from a disability group that you're not reaching that you want to reach. Mm Identify the people in your community in that group that like your topic. If you are a weaving museum, find some people who are deaf or hard of hearing who love weaving and bring them into your museum and sit down and talk to them about their museum experiences, uh, experiences they've had in the past and what they like about your museum and what they would like to be able to do. And, and what some of their experiences have been that have been barriers to them feeling welcome in your museum. And that conversation over a cup of coffee and taking them on tours and talking to them about what they like and what's, what's fun and educational and exciting about what you're doing and what is not, what are the barriers, will help you come up with some changes. We, I call it just ask.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: and I think if if you sit down with your target group and 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 one on one and and t- have conversations, you will you will come up with five things that you can do that are not going to break the bank and not going to change everything you do but are going to improve your relationships with that group and and help them to enjoy what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So simple. Talk. Talk to your folks.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just get that conversation started yeah
1: yeah yeah and meet them um because uh you know in in terms of blindness uh you know uh uh, blindness is a kind of a of a um it's a it has a high and profound impact on people's lives but it is relatively rare uh and so you may not know anybody that's blind or visually impaired uh and 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 so you're going to make all kinds of incorrect assumptions about uh, uh, both what they want uh, and also about their lives and how they perceive things. And and so until you get to know them as individuals, as people, and understand the uh, obstacles, you're not going to be able to make your museum more accessible for them. hmm
0: mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I'm also interested in this question of what your museum and APH has done for Louisville? I mean, we're talking about museums engaging in communities, and has APH's presence in Louisville changed the city over the years?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I know that right now we have what we call our accessible cities initiative here inside the company. It's not in the museum. It's actually bigger. Um, It's under our president, Craig Medor. but he wants to make Louisville the most accessible city in the in the in the united States Oh,
2: interesting um
1: and so you know uh you know part of that is our um in is nearby explorer and and working on ways to make you know the city streets more accessible um, you know we are part of a, another thing called the uh let's see the Louisville. Cultural Accessibility Association, which is we're partnering with the Center for the Arts and Actors Theater of Louisville to do training sessions for staff of uh, other museums and cultural sites here in town about how to make their uh, programs more accessible for people with all kinds of disabilities. Um, uh, you, You know, one thing that's true about APH is APH is here, the Kentucky School for the Blind is right next door to us. And then, uh, there's a, um, uh, a workshop, uh, LC industries back behind a kind of an employment, uh, vocational educational place that's close. So, I mean, if you live in our part of Louisville, you're very familiar with seeing uh, people who are blind or visually impaired on the streets. And I, I think that goes a long way towards, uh, breaking down a lot of barriers. You know, when your neighbors are, uh, blind or visually impaired themselves, it, you understand a lot more about their lives and, and, and the, and you identify them as, as people rather than as their disability, you know, that's Bill, that's Sue, uh, that's not the blind guy, they're people. And, and when we get to that point where we identify people as people, uh, rather than as their disability, then we're really starting to get somewhere. I, I think, I think, the printing house has helped in, in, in starting to bridge that gap.
2: Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To uh, pivot a little bit toward researchers. I mean, what I find so fascinating about your museum is it's relevant for a lot of different histories. There's blind history, obviously the history of technology, book history, the history of education. Mm -hmm. I I mean, the list goes on. (laughs) So yeah,
1: for a specialized museum, there are, there are a lot of little things in there.
0: Absolutely, and I assume that you do allow researchers to come and use your facility. You mentioned a library. What are some of the things that researchers in our audience might want to know about? Do you have an archive, for example?
1: We do. We do. In fact, uh, over the last 10 years, we have really acquired some really important collections as we have started to partner with some of the other major blindness organizations, and they've seen the value of archiving their papers here at the printing house uh you know for instance uh, I went up to the Carroll Center in uh, Boston uh Thomas Carroll was this very important mid 20th century uh rehabilitation guy who kind of invented blindness rehabilitation for uh older folks oh okay um it 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 never occurred to anybody Uh, that someone who lost their vision later in life might need some rehabilitation training. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you keep cooking? How do you clean the house? You know, how do you maintain, you know, how do you move around Mm -hmm. Uh, as opposed to just sitting at home?
2: Uh,
1: And so father, so father Carroll started a rehab center up there in Boston, which is now called the Carroll center that works with people who lose their vision later in life. And so his papers, you know, Father Carroll was involved in every major endeavor in rehabilitation in the mid-20th century. Uh, He was the chaplain for the Blinded Veterans Association. And so he was really an important part of their experience of all these folks who came back from World War II with serious eye uh, injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, And so his papers are just a goldmine for anybody who's interested in that sort of thing. And so we have his papers here. Um, we also have the papers of the Orientation and Mobility Division of AER. Uh, so we have all these major collections. We have a reading room. Uh, we have uh, our collections manager, and Rich is is always willing to talk to people who are working on aspects of this, and uh, can kind of identify, uh, you know, what parts of our collection might be in your area of research, and uh, and we can pull those things and you can, you know, use them in our reading
0: room. Oh, that's tremendous. Well, you know, I think now everyone should go to Louisville and check out your museum. But for people <laughs> who yeah, um, do you have traveling exhibits if people want to bring a piece of you to their institution?
1: We do. We do. We have four traveling shows. Three of them are kind of just tabletop exhibits. One is about uh, Braille writers, historic Braille writers. One is about uh, what we call the War of the Dots. Um, which was a a big debate in the late 19th, early 20th century about what code to use, what tactile code to use. Um, We have one about the historic residential schools. Most of the states had their own, you know, state school for the blind, and uh, it's kind of looked at the history of those. But our major show is called Child in a Strange Country. Helen Keller and the History of People who are uh, education for people who are blind or visually impaired. And and basically what Child in a Strange Country does is it looks at that that communication barrier uh, and and uses Helen, who's, you know, the one blind person that so many people know uh, uh, as kind of a portal, if you want to think about it that way, to uh, explore the story. And so it, it's about uh, 2,500 square feet when it's all set up. So it's kind of a, you know, needs a, uh, a moderate sized museum or library to host it. The other three exhibits are fairly small and just about anybody could host them. And information on uh, borrowing those exhibits is on our website. Again, APH.org forward slash museum.
0: Hmm, excellent. And if I can put in a plug for your website as well, I checked out your online exhibits and your narrator jukebox is fantastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so one of the cool things, uh in 1936, uh we started recording uh audiobooks for people who are blind and visual impaired, uh, for the basically for the Library of Congress. Um and to, even today, we are the largest, uh, vendor, supplier of, uh, audiobooks. They call them talking books. And, uh, so downstairs in our, in our studio, we have, uh, 11 recording studios and have all these great narrators who have worked here over the years. Uh, you know, almost every, you know, back in the 1950s, every television anchor in, in Louisville was, had a side gig, you know, moonlighting at the American Printing House for the Blind. So these are all names that, you know, if you're a blind or reason impaired and you grew up reading our books, you know all these people. So the jukebox is just a little uh, clip of each one of, of uh, really just a few, uh, 30 or so of our of our narrators uh, over time. Just some of the ones who maybe were the most prolific uh, readers.
0: Mm-hmm. And I can imagine it's a bit of a blast for the past when people listen to a narrator that they remember from their childhood. or something. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We, you know, we have people call all the time and they're like, yeah, you know, I had this book that I really loved, you know, when I was growing up in 1965. And could I get a copy of it? <laughs> yeah, it's great.
0: Great. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. So before I let you go, I want to ask what's next for you? What's the museum working on these days? Any new projects or goals that you're trying to achieve?
1: I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, Caroline. I have a secret project that we are working on, but I cannot tell you what it is. Wow. Uh, <laughs> we are actually under a, uh, you know, those non-disclosure agreements, but it, but it is going to be big. And I think we're going to announce it this summer. Okay. Um, and uh, it's we're probably going to be looking at building a new building here on site. Uh, so that when you come... Right now, our, our uh, museum is located in the original 1883 building, the first building that was built here on the site. And it's kind of cocooned inside of 14 different structures that make up the printing house. Mm-hmm. But if this... If this project comes to fruition um and it's it's uh, very exciting, then we might be building a new building on the front of uh and so your portal into the whole building would be the museum so wow fine, fun stuff.
0: all right, well, we'll have to stay tuned for this announcement. you've got everybody in society. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is great well mike i want to just thank you so much for your time today it was wonderful to talk to you i as i said i encourage everyone to check out your museum website at aph.org museums thank you for your time thank you caleb thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript please join us again next time bye-bye